This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about AI this morning, because it seems to me that despite all of the warnings and all of the concern, things are still moving full steam ahead with development and research. And now comes warnings that AI systems will most likely develop sentience in the future, as in a subset of consciousness, including perception. And when I heard that, I thought, how close are we to this? And are people not a little worried about this? Now, J.C. Resanthus is a sociologist at the University of Chicago and co-founder of the Satians Institute. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning to talk about this. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Should we not be a little worried about this, J.C., when we see these stories about AI at this point? There's a lot of reason for, for worry, but also excitement. People are focused on the many different capacities that these new, what we call digital minds could have. One of those, the one we talk about the most is intelligence. But increasingly, we're talking about something like general intelligence, which is the ability to solve problems a lot of, across a lot of different domains. Sentience, which is the capacity to feel. Perception and the ability to holistically you know, sense your environment and grasp the world. All of these come with their own unique suite of benefits and costs. Okay, what kind of benefits do you think there are? So if we have AI that can communicate with us and understand us, kind of know where we're coming from, because the AI has their own experience of the world, that can make them really valuable as a companion, as a therapist. Uh, they can see where you're coming from. And a lot of people think this is one reason, even just in the course of building an intelligent system, you'll get these other capacities. You know, if, it, if you want a system that can design a really great press release for your company or write great social media right. posts, if it's got a grasp of, of humor, a sense of humor, it's going to be better at that than if it doesn't have one. Okay, but where do we draw the line? I feel like when it comes to technology, we don't see the line until it's behind us sometimes. We don't even know where we would draw a line right now. Yeah. Um, actually, in, in the U.S. Congress this week, uh, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, that's the company behind ChatGPT, one of the most famous of these tools, will be grilled um, on what can be regulated, what can be done with these technologies. Many people don't know. So a lot of scientists are, are just calling for a slowdown. So they're calling for increased accountability and transparency and scrutiny. We're moving so quickly that we kind of just need to take a step back and say, hey, where are the lines that we could draw and which ones make the most sense? But JC, when have we ever done that? When have we ever decided that, you know what, we're going to slow this down because we're concerned about it? Yeah, I mean, that's why we're all up at night right now concerned. Uh, Oppenheimer, this, this movie is coming out this summer on the Manhattan Project yes. and nuclear weapons. And one of the lines in the trailer for that was, well, well, can you guarantee that there's zero risk that this weapon will destroy the earth? And he says, uh, likely zero, but I just have theory right now. We haven't done it in practice. So I think a lot of it comes from having small empirical tests under intense scrutiny and better understanding these models before they come out. But you're right that we don't have much precedent for it. And AI is sort of a one-shot technology because of the ways it's able to grow and improve that a pause is really the only way forward. Is there a way, though, in your opinion, to continue to develop AI with this awareness, with this understanding, so that people who are doing that development can stop and say, wait a minute, this might be too much? Yes, I mean, that's exactly the goal, because there are a lot of things that just current systems can do if we take the time to integrate them in society, understand them, fine-tune them for specific tasks, instead of just building bigger and bigger AI. So, I mean, the founders of these companies call their goal building godlike AI, you know, building the most powerful systems. What we have right now is incredibly powerful. It, it really understands English text, for example, and it can produce all sorts of things. It's often just kind of chaotic and it's hard to get it to say the right thing. There's a whole ensemble of, of startups and business leaders trying to apply it to specific fields. So, okay, what can it do for medicine? Can it help people online, you know, as a first pass at their diagnosis? Can it be applied in education as, as an individualized tutor and so on and so forth? 
all of that research should continue. And, and that's kind of the way we can spend our time in a, in a nice, we talk, we talk about these AI winters. Uh, so area times when investment and, and hype declines in AI and then the, the industry crashes and burns because it was overhyped. Um, we might be headed towards one of those, but we could stay in this summer and we could enjoy the, the fruits of our labor and apply it to real world problems. Okay. So here's another question then. So if we can make AI understand a lot of things, can we also make AI understand our concerns? Yeah. In fact, the most promising long-term solution to what we call the alignment problem, so aligning these systems, is to have some AIs that are helping us align other AIs. Because if you know the current model that people talk right now is GPT-4. So if version four of an AI can train version five, because, you know, we can barely understand right now, there's a version two out there that's kind of small and we're trying to understand it, see how it works internally. Um, If we can do that kind of one step at a time, that might allow us to align a system that's more powerful than we are. But it really is unprecedented. You know, we don't have, uh, despite your cat at home being able to kind of tell you what to do and and, and own you in some sense, we don't have good (laughs) examples of less intelligent beings really controlling more intelligent beings. Uh, you clearly got a cat, don't you, JC? <laughs> I have two dogs, but I've been around cats. Okay, yeah, because my cat is definitely like that for sure. Okay, <laughs> that, but that seems to me that what you're describing there would mean a level of awareness in the people who are developing and working on AI right now. Do you see that kind of awareness? It's complicated. So many of the founders of the field of modern AI got their start because they were motivated by this, this existential challenge that's, that's coming up for the human race. So there was this book in 2014 called Superintelligence, where a philosopher, Nick Bostrom, was warning about the dangers of AI. But a lot of people in Silicon Valley took from that, oh, hey, AI is going to be really powerful. I could start a company here and make a lot of profits. So in the background, there's been this concern of safety, and I'd like to see that manifest more. But the thing is, you get these profit incentives, you get misalignment, um, you get people who are thinking it's an arms race. It's really easy to reason as one of these companies or even as a country like the U.S. and say, hey, you know, China or hey, our our competition might come out with this before us. We're going to do a better job ethically of of the safety and alignment of these systems. So we need to race to it first. But that's a a race to the bottom. Nobody's going to win if everyone's doing that. Right. But isn't that what's going on right now, JC, what you described there? Like the arms race seems to be among big tech companies and they're, they're racing each other. That's true to an extent. Um, right now, these sm- this small set of companies is pretty far ahead of everyone else. So there's always been this question in the background of, you know, is China in particular, because they've got so much tech infrastructure, are they building something behind the scenes? And we actually are racing with them. But it turns out that, you know, so much of this field is, is public in ways, or at least has been to date, because you have these big AI conferences that academics attend and researchers of these companies attend. But it really seems like a select few companies are ahead of the pack. Um, We might be seeing competition emerge. Right now, Google and Microsoft are kind of head-to-head. But again, you've got some people there who want to cooperate. OpenAI itself has a mandate. You know, they've said that they want to slow down when they're reaching really dangerous systems. Um, We just need to hold them to that, hold them to their commitment. And I think that's what Congress needs to do and what the public needs to do. Yeah, do you have any hopes at all for what's happening in front of Congress this week? Like, will Congress go, okay, we need to step in here? I do have some hope, in part because if what you think right now we need is just a slowdown, there are a lot of different ways to achieve that. So you put in regulations, safety checks. There are many different ways to do this. For example, the hardware that these companies are using, you can put controls and and track where that's going and make sure it's being used in the right ways. You can look at software and make sure when they build a new model that it's rigorously tested, that third parties come in and audit. But all of that kind of has the same general effect, which is to slow down and provide accountability and transparency. So I think we can do that. And I think that it's complicated because um, to get these models to do what we want, we want them to be safe and aligned. Because if they're not, they're not going to be giving us the text that we want for for whatever medical diagnosis or some other problem. So I think there are the incentives right there, but it's it's very crowded and complicated. Um, Congress can apply that slowdown pressure. And then academics and other researchers who focus on AI safety research can provide the technical tools to actually implement safer AI. So interesting. JC, thank you for your time on that. Thanks for having me. That is J.C. Reese-Anthes, sociologist at the University of Chicago, talking about artificial intelligence. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, is it hot enough for you? Because it certainly has been breaking records all over the place. So let's get all the details on that. Joining us now is Global News meteorologist Mark Madriga. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Simi. I love the tune. I love the tune from Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> so right? good, right? At some point, yeah, I'm sure we'll play Axel F this morning, too, because that's a great song. <laughs> love that theme, too. Oh, for sure. <laughs> love it. Yeah. And oh. you've got the shirt that goes with it today. I love your Hawaiian shirt you're wearing. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I dragged those out. Uh, of course, Wayne Cox brought these in many years ago on, a, on our news hour, and I uh, I didn't do it for a while, but now I'm going full Hawaiian as far as I can see all <laughs> week long. Why not? It's no going to be a going to be a hot several days. Yeah. Let's talk about the records that broke on the weekend. Yeah, 33 yesterday. Uh, I don't have a count from Saturday, but I think it was uh, close to that. But yesterday, 33 across the province uh, were set, and all the highest temperatures in the country, of course, here in British Columbia yesterday. Uh, Vancouver Airport didn't set a record yesterday. We got close, but West Van, White Rock, Abbotsford, Agassiz, Hope all broke records, and and through the interior as well. Uh, Lytton and uh, Chilliwack topping the nation yesterday at uh, 30. 35.9 and Squamish 35.8 just very very close and many in the mid 30s so just uh, shattering records I noticed Victoria Harbor where's my list is so many pages here Victoria Harbor yesterday 31 that broke the record by three degrees for the date that was set in 1912 and their records go back to 1874 so just an example some of these periods of records are are centuries old or, or over a century old uh, now, today, I'd say similar, uh, close to what we had yesterday, another real scorcher, low 30s away from the water, Metro Vancouver, still mid-20s at the beaches, but certainly fresher there. And then tomorrow, we're going to get a little marine air creep in here, which is going to be just fine. We'll be down a few degrees tomorrow, but still as high as 28 away from the water. But you'll notice it won't be quite as hot tomorrow, and probably on Wednesday the same, more like mid to upper 20s rather than low 30s peak temperature here. Uh, Thursday, Friday could climb up a little again, but uh, not as hot as today and yesterday. So there is a little relief on the way, but uh, boy, still heat for us overall for probably right into Saturday, maybe Sunday, but at that time it'll be more like low to mid-20s, so staying sunny. Uh, The interior going to break records again today, uh, mid-30s a lot of spots. One more element I need to, to mention, and it is uh, not a good one, that is a risk of lightning in the eastern Fraser Valley tonight and also the southern interior, a high chance of at least some lightning strikes for later today and tonight. And with the forest getting uh, so much drier over time, that, that concerns me, Simi. Okay, well, that's a good one to keep an eye on. Mark, thank you. My pleasure. Talk soon. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the latest now on allegations of foreign political interference. Turns out some parliamentarians are now being briefed on whether or not they were believed to be targeted. We've heard about Conservative MP Michael Chong and the concern for his family in Hong Kong. Well, longtime NDP MP Jenny Kwan has also been contacted by security officials and former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. So for the latest on all of this, we're going to get all caught up now. We're joined now by Michelle Juno-Katsuya, who's a former chief of Asia-Pacific at CSIS and author of Nest of Spies. Michelle, thank you for being back with us. Good morning. Thank you very much. Where, what do you make of these latest kind of um, allegations that we hear about that even more MPs are being targeted? Well, CSIS have known uh, for decades now, many MPs throughout uh, the time that has been targeted by uh, China. And basically, anybody who was talking against China policy, uh, either against the Tibetan then, uh, uh, in favor of Taiwan or, or the Hong Kong pro-democracy, Falun Gong or uh, the Uyghur, Uyghur uh, in that perspective, you would be sure that they would be sort of targeted and, and subject of a campaign from China against them. Uh, same thing for the people who were perceived as being supporter. Uh, they would receive support from China. In the past, uh, CSIS used to go and brief directly, <clears throat> first of all, the, the NP targeted, uh, definitely the uh, uh, leader of the party they belong to, and definitely the prime minister. We seem to sort of have uh, uh, known now that this practice might have been stopped or, or, or reduced through time. 
which is absolutely uh, inappropriate to my point of view, because we need to be capable to inform the people uh, of this kind of, uh, of uh, targeting against them. And now, fortunately, it might sort of come back and, and, and be in practice like it should have been uh, always. Right. So do you think this heightened scrutiny, Michelle, will make a difference then? The fact that we're talking about mm-hmm. it, that it is public. Will this change anything, do you think? Hopefully, it will not change anything in terms of having MPs speaking out and, and, and rallying for cause uh, to defend the rights of individuals or to defend or protect our own democracy. Uh, hope, because this is exactly what China wants. It wants to bully people in, in, in scaring them and in, in, in forcing them to walk away from certain uh, issues like that. Uh, hopefully, uh, now that uh, cat is out of the bag, if you allowed me uh, to say, uh, that we are now finally talking openly about something that I have been personally uh, known and thesis I've known for more than three decades, we will now finally take steps to uh, make sure that does not reproduce itself and not continue this way. But in order to do that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that neither the RCMP or CSIS are uh, uh, well-equipped to do the job because like we've witnessed for the last 30 years, every single prime ministers have been compromised. Every single prime minister have been told when something was happening and they let things continue all single prime ministers. So obviously the, the chain of command with CSIS and the RCMP did not prevent this to take place. And now the Chinese operators are well-rooted in our society and, and are controlling many aspects of the Chinese community and, and even part of our uh, Chinese, uh, uh, political democratic uh, system. So we need to have probably an organization that will be independent uh, will be named by and reporting to the House of Commons in order to have a full transparency and, 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 and control of the decision-making. Now, does a conversation, Michelle, also need to be broadened on this topic that we, we're talking about Chinese political interference here and allegations of that, but what about other countries? Do, do other other countries also try to do this in Canada? This is an excellent point, and you are right. Many countries, many authoritarian countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, 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 India are co- currently doing this kind of foreign interference within their community, within our democratic system, try to approach our MPs in order to gain their support and, and for, for favoring their policy, etc. So you are absolutely right. We need to be capable to sort of expand this view on many other countries because they're not the one the only one china i mean they're not the only one doing this okay so then how do we put rules in place or how do we change things so that we are aware when other countries try to do this well first of all we need to uh, do exactly like uh, australia has done in 2017 2018 acquired and make ourselves a law against foreign interference. The problem that we're currently facing is our law system, like the criminal code, does not allow us to protect our citizens and protect our MPs adequately. Uh, There is foreign interference coming from the diplomats that are right here in in Canada, but they are protected by the diplomatic immunity. But they are helped by uh, 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 people that are Canadians, and they consciously uh, uh, do that kind of work. They need to know that there will be consequences if they hate, uh, if they help uh, a, a foreign country. And I'm talking about jail time. I'm not talking about a fine or a slap on the fingers or anything like this, because we're talking about some people who are close to treason. So we, are, we, we have to be very serious about that, define exactly what are the activities of a foreign interference, because there's a difference between influence and foreign interference. Yeah. Influence is, is over, is, is, is known. And it's, it's, it's an absolutely acceptable practice. For interference, it's covert. In, in, it's malicious in its way, in its intentions. And we need to be capable to define that and to be capable to punish it. Because currently the investigators are ill-equipped to be capable to, do, to protect our society. I'm glad you made that difference there. Uh, because that's what I'm curious about. Because I feel like right now in all this discussion, those two things are getting mixed up. 
You're right, and, and it shall not, because it is totally appropriate for a foreign country or foreign, uh, 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 foreign uh, uh, employees to try to influence positively uh, uh, a country right. in favor of doing trade or doing business or exchanges with their own country. We need that, and that's how we avoid uh, wars. But if we are uh, uh, letting foreign interference take place, that totally sends uh, uh, an element of rotten into the system, and we need to stop that. Okay, so then you feel like this needs to start by we have to, Canada needs to define where that line is, where we have a problem. Absolutely. Then when you have this law, you have the capability for the investigators, either being the police or this new agency that I'm suggesting to create, uh, that will have the power to investigate, to uh, prosecute without asking permission to anybody. Frankly, this is the problem that we've been having. Uh, uh, we've been having, for example, uh, uh, we, we are reading that CSIS knew about this Chinese diplomat in Toronto since 2019. Uh, a file was compiled, a very thick file was compiled on the individual's global affair has been informed since 2020, and yet nothing has been done until it, it hit the, the general public in the, in the media. And that, to me, tells me also that global affairs might be part of the problem and some shake-up and some, some clean-up might need to be done over there because, as Stalin would say, there's some useful idiots maybe working for China within that uh, organization. Then why do you think an MP like Jenny Kwan would be targeted? Because she has been very... Is it just because she has been so outspoken on China's record when it comes to human rights? That would be sufficient for China to target an MP this way. Uh, because MPs do have a voice, do have a microphone, they speak to the audience, to an audience, and they can influence. And the concept of foreign interference is to be capable to gain influence, one way or the other, but you want to control that influence, which ultimately control the destiny of, your, of that country or that, that writing, wherever you, 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 you target. And that's exactly what they've tried to do with, uh, with her which is eventually to discredit her and eventually sort of try to quiet her uh, criticism by forcing maybe even some uh, uh, people within the government uh, and in power to uh, not assist her and help her as much as possible. Because this assistance coming from uh, CSIS and telling her that she was targeted, it is a form of assistance that would sort of keep our system, uh, uh, electoral system and our democracy healthy. It's not healthy as we speak. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of concern these days about some of our vibrant neighborhoods and, and what's happened to them in recent years and trying to get people to go back. We've talked about Gastown. We've talked about Granville Street. And we're talking as well, of course, about Chinatown because we need to see more people down there. We don't want to lose the history and how amazing it's always been. So now we hear that even the provincial government is stepping up on this front. So on Friday, uh, the government announced a one-time $2.2 million grant dedicated to revitalize Chinatown. But we thought, well, what does that mean? Where's that money going to go? Well, Carol Lee joins us now, chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, to talk about this. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Simi. What kind of a difference do you think this money is going to make? I think it's going to make a huge difference. And, you know, it's it's really great. Um, People are excited because I think that this is the first time there's actually alignment in all three levels of government. And so um, we're very grateful to the provincial government for this one-time grant that's going to be used for, you know, more lighting infrastructure, rest- restoration of some of the storefronts and and uh, the historic neon signing uh, signage, as well as um, an upgrade to the Chinese Cultural Center. So um, I think, you know, within the next year, I think Chinatown is really going to look different. It's starting to look different already, though, isn't it? I know <laughs> it is. You know, the city's um, sort of uplift Chinatown program has focused on sort of more cleaning. And uh, people have been noticing that it looks a lot cleaner. Um, I think that their commitment to have more police officers. So we're seeing a little bit, you know, their their presence um, is making people feel a little bit safer. So it's coming. And then we had the federal government um, announcement as well. So we're 
doing lighting upgrades. It's, it's, it's really an exciting time for Chinatown. I've been working on this for, um, with the foundation for the last, I guess it's 12 years. And I think this is really the turning point for us, for Chinatown. Well, that's good to hear. Tell me more about the, the neon signage that might get a boost from this. Well, that was one of the things that we put in the, the application. And this, I, I don't know how, much, how far the money is going to go because we've got these different um, uh, pillars that we're, we're supposed to be funding. But we will put in some more neon signage because I think that's one of the things that overall lighting um, is really something that people notice that has no longer been there, um, especially at night. It's very dark, and I think people don't feel that safe. So we thought bringing back some of the historic neon signage um, throughout the neighborhood might make it seem a little bit more fun and, um, and remind people of what it used to be. The neon signage seems so historically Chinatown too, right? <laughs> people always love it. People always talk about it. And somehow we lost it along the way, didn't we? Well, we did. I think that there was an effort by, you know, one of the city councils back, I don't know if it was in the 70s or 80s, that they were going to stop um, supporting neon signage. And so just gradually they started coming down. And um, I'm actually trying to reopen the Ho Ho restaurant. And that was a big part of what I wanted to do was bring back that neon sign. It's a 30 Carol, foot Carol when you reopen the Ho Ho, you tell me I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're definitely going to be invited. So no, it's gonna be, it'll be fun. I think in some ways, all of these um, initiatives are going to make people feel that, you know, Chinatown is back and, and hopefully by the time we have our street festival light up Chinatown, that September the um, 9th and 10th, that the neighborhood will look quite different. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about that. Carol, thanks so much <laughs> for your time. Thanks so much for having me on, Timmy. That's Carol Lee, chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Honestly, if you haven't been down there lately, check it out. It does look different. It certainly feels different. And they're hoping that this new grant from the provincial government goes a long way to restoring uh, some of that luster that Chinatown has lost in the years gone by. I would love to see a return of that neon signage. How about you? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What is an eviction map and what can we learn from it about the housing crisis in our province? Well, there's a mapping project that was undertaken by the First United Church Community Ministry Society. It actually helps to understand who is getting evicted in BC and why those evictions are happening. So let's learn about that, right? Amanda Burroughs is with us now, the Interim Executive Director of the First United Church Community Ministry Society. Amanda, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell me about this mapping project. How did this start? Right, I know so many folks are like, what is a downtown Eastside charity doing this groundbreaking work? Well, we chose to undertake this because, you know, we need to get to the root causes of homelessness and poverty. Like, we've been in this community in the downtown Eastside for nearly 140 years, and we witnessed the tolls that this takes. And so that's the broader sense, but specific to then why this project then emerged. For decades, we've had a legal advocacy clinic on the front lines witnessing these power imbalances between the landlord and the renter. We wanted to dig deeper into what the harm of evictions could mean. We know some things could be preventable through this work because we have weaker laws here than any other jurisdiction in Canada. And, and mainly then specific, like why then do this mapping project is evictions in BC aren't tracked. And that has been one of the findings of other folks getting to know this project going, what do you mean they're not tracked. So we want to begin that work as we've been doing and we want to understand who is getting evicted, why and what are the impacts. How do you even do that? How, where do you start? Where do we start? Well, we have an amazing team and uh, we have a, a lawyer researcher who compiled the survey um, and created this work and these questions. And we just really went out and started to mobilize in grassroots organizing, getting the words out that we're doing this, posting this, you know, on socials. And it steadily, it started last year and it steadily has begun um, getting traction. And actually, as soon as this went live over the weekend, we've had a surge of respondents now that the word's even more out. Okay, so what are you learning from this? What kind of information are you getting? Yeah, so I mean, there's some there's some stuff that you would you would make assumptions on, but we have been really surprised with some findings. So there are four major themes that are really important because these are going to create or are creating some of the solutions we want moving forward. 
One is the prevalence of landlord evictions. Now, this is almost 60% of respondents. So um, there has been, I think, some stigma around that evictions happen because of non-repayments or damage to property. That was actually only 18% of the data that revealed. Almost 60% is the prevalence of landlord evictions. And that means they want to use the property or sell it. There's neighborhood displacement. This is a second big finding. So 97% of low-income earners are displaced from their neighborhoods. And, and when we want to build, you know, social resilience in communities, um, when people have such economic instability and housing instability, they have to move. It really created separation with families, getting to school, transportation. The impacts of that finding have been pretty heartbreaking. Uh, that also, big time, the prevalence of informal evictions. 28% of respondents just, like, received an email or a text message. Not even a formal eviction. They didn't even know their rights or the right process. And the fourth one being, you know, the most devastating finding is people are homeless. We didn't realize at the time of taking this, people said 27% that they were still looking for a place to live. And of that, 53% may earn under $10,000 a year. They're sleeping in RVs, they're couch surfing, they're in shelters. Uh, And that finding has been, you know, really hard. You know, we're not totally surprised, but... Those are the four big key wow. themes that will then create our next steps for Just solutions. The, the lack of, I guess, awareness on what the rules actually are here is kind of astounding, isn't it, Meta? Uh, <laughs> yes, and um, it's, it comes down to one of the next steps, too, of we want to be able to have more access to the justice people should have access to. That means we need to remove some barriers and fears for people. So people, a lot of folks don't know that the RTB, the residential tenancy branch exists. So that's some findings. So we need to educate folks more that they have this right. Even folks that know they have this right still aren't accessing it because of fear of retribution, uh, bureaucracy, uh, the, the, there's so much data that came back to us that it's too complicated, there's stress, there's fear, that they just give up and don't do and don't even exercise their rights as they currently stand now. Now, we want to strengthen their rights even further, and we have work to do in this education piece. Now, were you able to kind of ascertain where evictions are happening? Yeah, I mean, most of the data, at the time of our map went live, there were 443 respondents and about 160 of those are from Vancouver. There are some in the rural um, neighborhoods as well, and we hope to expand some survey respondents across BC, but the bulk of them are happening in Vancouver from our data. Okay, so it didn't matter where they were happening. It sounds like the circumstances were similar, though. Yeah, the same four themes, um, the na- like the neighborhood displacement, like people totally moving to different communities was top, um, and then not knowing their rights was right at the top, and it didn't matter if it was a, a rural or urban setting. That is so interesting. Okay, so what do you do with this information then, Amanda? Yeah, so um, right right now we're going to continue to gather information and, and document our results. But, but this year the plan is we're using this data to then form our law reform, and we're going to present some solutions about how we can make this situation better. Now, long-term, we all know we need more housing. We can't rely on private markets. We want more public housing, and that's a longer-term solution. But there are some really um, tangible, like, interventions that we can take right now. And for instance, um, you know, you do not have to apply to end a tenancy in BC. You do in Ontario. So that's why we don't know how many evictions are really happening, because a landlord doesn't actually have to apply. So if we could create that requirement that might start alleviating some of these potential bad faith evictions that have been happening, um, according to this data. Um, We would love to introduce flexibility if rent is more than a few days late. It's a very austere rule right now. There's no wiggle room. Is there any way we can introduce repayment plans or even have a better access to the rent bank? Um, You know, when a tenant loses a dispute even, they only have two days to vacate their property. That creates so much trauma and stress. That is such a short time frame. And, the, and a big one, a big one is, uh, you know, we have rent control on a unit now for a current tenant. But once they leave, there is no limit on what a landlord can change this new tenant's rent to be when they move in. And that's why we're seeing these massive increases happening. And those are four suggestions that we would love to start building out to get towards. And then, again, that 
broader overarching, um, letting tenants know they do have rights and trying to help them navigate the systems um, to make sure that these bad faith evictions aren't happening. It seems a little unbelievable, doesn't it, that so many people would get evicted because the landlord says they want their own use of that. It just seems too much. Uh, I think the data is saying it is too much. We have to do something about it. And when you see what people have, you know, given us their stories and are telling what's happening, you know, separating from their kids, like they can't have their kids anymore. I mean, it's, I've had to make sure that there's the team that is collecting this data and it's a huge team of volunteers have to have, I have the support and reading what they're reading as well as researchers collecting this stuff because the information we're receiving is overwhelming and heartbreaking. And now Amanda, where can people find this website and contribute to the information? Yeah, firstunited.ca. If you've ever been evicted, doesn't matter in BC where, when, income levels, we want to know about it. We're continuing to collect data. This is such an important project and the feedback has been remarkable. All right, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having us. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you think the media should be able to publish more information from court cases? We have a pretty strict set of rules here in Canada, especially when you compare them with what you see, you know, south of the border. But now our rules here are being challenged in a case that is going before the Supreme Court of Canada. And the BC Civil Liberties Association will be involved in this. So let's find out why. Vibert Jack joins us now, litigation director for the BC Civil Liberties Association. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about this case first? Sure. So this is a challenge that's being brought by a number of uh, media organizations to a section of the criminal code that prevents them or anyone from um, speaking about or reporting on um, things that happen in jury trials, criminal trials. Um, and in this case, uh, it was a fairly high public interest case, um, and the court in in the case uh, ruled that the media organizations couldn't report on things that were happening kind of pre-trial applications. Um, the provision in the criminal code, to read the wording of it, it seems to only apply while the jury or after the jury has been selected. The court in this case kind of applied it more broadly to pre-trial applications, and, and that's what the organizations are challenging. Okay, that's so interesting then, because the public doesn't usually get to see or hear about this kind of stuff, do they? Well, there's a general principle, the open court principle, that things that happen in our courts um, are supposed to be uh, you know, open to the public, and the press is supposed to be able to report on it, but um, in some cases, uh, there's limits on that. Um, so in, in this case, the reason for the publication ban is that, um, you know, Parliament doesn't want juries to be uh, biased by things that they see in the media. So there are applications that the jury is excluded from, um, decisions that the court makes. So as an example, if uh, the accused is trying to have some evidence excluded from the trial, it wouldn't really make sense to have the jury hear all about that before the judge decides whether to let that evidence be included or not. Um, so that's the purpose uh, of this particular publication, Ben. And yeah, the, the public doesn't get to hear about it in, in jury trials because the risk is that the jury would hear about it too and it could impact their decision making. Right. Even this part, even the fighting over what could possibly be made public, I feel, is something that Canadians, we don't often see this, like that it would go this far to have this discussion. Yeah, well, of course, anytime a case goes all, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, as it, as it has here, um, it's a bit of a rare situation. Um, I think it's, it's very important that the public does get to know um, about these goings on. Um, you know, Public scrutiny of the criminal justice system is incredibly important. Uh, we, we don't want to have secret criminal trials going on in our country. Uh, I think that's very scary. And basically what, what we're arguing here is that, yes, sometimes, um, sometimes publication bans are necessary to protect fair trial interests, and, and the BCCLA is 
obviously uh, very concerned about fair fair trials and criminal cases. We want to uphold that as well. Um, but we're worried in this case that um, the parties, there's a risk that we could see fair trial and freedom of the press and the open court principle uh, being seen as being in conflict. Um, whereas from our point of view, the open court principle, freedom of the press, uh, public scrutiny of criminal trials, those things actually uphold fair trials, and uh, we don't want it to be limited any more than necessary. Now, Viber, is there a way then, to, in your opinion, to balance these things? Like, what is your argument to the Supreme Court here? Well, if you read the wording of the criminal code provision that's being challenged here, um, it, it seems that the publication ban should really only apply to a limited portion of the trial, um, which is where the jury um, has been selected and has been given permission to separate, um, but before they have begun their deliberations. So that's really the part of the trial where the jury could possibly be reading things in the news. Um, if the provision was just applied the way it seems to be have seems to have been intended by Parliament, then we say that would be probably a good balance. Um, but some courts in the country, and including in this case, have um, applied it more broadly, uh, again, all the way to the very first applications that are happening even before the jury has been selected. Um, so in our view, that, that really doesn't strike a balance. And if there's specific concerns that arise earlier in the trial process, then there are common law rules around publication bans that give the courts the discretion to apply a publication ban in specific cases where it's necessary. So we would say that's that's the solution. Let judges use their discretion to, to strike the balance in, on a case-by-case basis. So do you feel that now it's just kind of, um, it's automatically used where it doesn't need to be automatically used in your opinion, unless there's some kind of concern? Exactly. Um, uh, either party um, can can raise concerns if they if they think that there's a risk uh, to trial fairness or some other important issue um, they can apply to the judge to have a, a publication ban put in place um, judges can do that on their own as well um, so yeah a, a blanket publication ban that just kind of applies across the board um, it just goes too far okay so what are the steps here then vibrant how is this how is this going to appear like what is the timeline um, well, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to be hearing the, ca- the case, uh, the appeal on Wednesday. Um, there's actually another related case coming out of Quebec that's going to be heard tomorrow as well. It's basically dealing with the same issue. Um, and then after hearing, um, after hearing oral arguments, the court could prov- give a decision immediately. So it's possible as soon as Wednesday. Uh, or they might reserve their judgment, which means they'll um, go away and write up a decision and then release it in the coming months. Okay, so it's going to be a while before we hear something. But does this happen periodically? Does a case like this get brought before the Supreme Court? Um, You know, there have been certainly cases in the past uh, at at the Supreme Court level that have dealt with um, publication bans um, more generally, I, I think. The case law is a little bit more developed in terms of what I was talking about earlier, the common law discretionary um, publication bans that judges can impose. So there's a a very clear uh, and well-developed test um, for judges to apply um, in cases where they're concerned that there might be a a risk of trial fairness and they want to have a publication ban imposed. Um, There's a little bit less case law, I think, on in terms of these statutory publication bans, so where the criminal code specifically says in certain cases the judges have to do it. Um, and that's what we're talking about here. So this was, uh, yeah, it's a little bit, certainly this hmm. particular provision hasn't been dealt with yet. So we're going to be very interested to see what the court does. I'll be following along for sure. Thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, time now, TS, introduce you to another extraordinary British Columbian. And today we are going to talk about connecting people through food. Because to me, it is the best way to learn about other people and other cultures. That's why more than 10 years ago, our guest, Inez Cook, opened a restaurant called Salmon and Bannock. And with it, 
really ushered in a whole new era in bringing Indigenous cuisine to a wider audience. And she has been using food and that restaurant to teach people about Indigenous cultures ever since. So joining us now is Inez Cook, co-owner of Salmon and Bannock. Inez, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. How did you come up with the idea of the restaurant all those years ago? Um, actually, I was in Kelowna uh, and I'd seen a big sign and it said, don't panic, we have Bannock. And uh, I made my friend stop the car and I was like, oh, my God, there's a native restaurant in Kelowna and we don't have one in Vancouver anymore. And um, like you said, you know, when I travel, I love having food from the land. I think it's really important. And I knew that the 2010 Olympics were coming and I thought it was time that we had another indigenous restaurant in Vancouver. That's, that's kind of how it happened. You know, it does seem like it took us a, a long time to figure that out, didn't it, Inez? So just that idea of, like, why didn't we have more Indigenous cuisine? Um, that's kind of a triggering question, but um, it's growing now, which is amazing. It is growing now. What, do you think part of that is the influence of your restaurant? Um, I don't know. I don't want to, I, I don't know. I think a lot of people, I mean, there's been a lot of fad diets, 100-mile diets, uh, farm to table, lots of different things like that. And we've always been that way. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. <laughs> We're kind of the OGs in that. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. How did you decide kind of what kind of cuisine you were going to have? Tell us a story of how you got to that place. Well, there had been an Indigenous restaurant in Vancouver prior to me, and she'd retired uh, several years before I opened. And I remember going to visit it, and it was just gorgeous. You go down the stairs, there was pebbles. It felt kind of like a longhouse. It was just amazing. And when I was opening up mine, I was really sad that I didn't have the finances to do something um, ex- crazy like that, like amazing. And I thought, you know what? No, I'm I'm modern Indigenous. I'm urban Indigenous, and I'm going to celebrate that. So you see that in the walls with our team, with the food. So it's Indigenous ingredients with a modern palate. And you're now also at YVR, aren't you? We are. We had our grand opening February 13th. So February 15th, Salmon and Bannock Bistro turned 13 years old. And February 13th, uh, Salmon and Bannock on the fly at YVR was born. A lot has changed in 13 years, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. So much more learning, I think, is happening now. And I understand that your restaurant received like a a traditional blessing as well when it opened. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Yeah, well, that was from um, a relative I'm adopted. And so it was it's kind of a long story, but I was uh, found through my restaurant. Um, What do you mean? uh, Well, I am 60 scoop, so I was taken away at age one. Uh, from Bella Coola and the New Hulk, I'm New Hulk from Bella Coola and the New Hulk community didn't know me. And it was all over the news that a New Hulk person had opened this restaurant and they didn't think that it was possibly true. They thought maybe I was culturally appropriating and choosing a nation far enough away that nobody would ask questions. And um, so they sent in spies to find out whether or not it was true. And uh, the first one came back and reported back to the community saying, I don't know her, but she looks 100% New Hulk. So then the next one came in and she'd asked several questions. And the only one I knew really was my biological mother's first name. So I gave her her first name and she got on the phone. And when she hung up, she had her arms extended and she said, let me be the first to welcome you home. We're family. And that was the day that my life changed. And shortly after that, I got about 50 Facebook friend requests from relatives. And Wow. Yeah, it was insane. And then an uncle came um, and he promised my late biological mother that he would find me. <clears throat> and so he came in and he found me and he did a, a blessing for me in the restaurant. And he told me my traditional name was going to be Snitsmana. And... Um, Shortly after that, he passed away, and the chief of my family came to Vancouver, and we had a family meeting, and he said, you need to be at the next family potlatch to receive your traditional name. So 11-11-11, I went to Bella Coola for the first time, and I received 
my traditional name, Snitsmana, and I received the beginning of my regalia. And uh, ever since then, I've been using my platform every chance that I get. Um, I'm, I'm, I make jokes saying I'm like a born-again native. <laughs> <laughs> but what's amazing about that, Inez, is that it was the, through the restaurant, right, that, that allowed this to happen. Yes. And it's almost like you were meant to be doing this. It's exactly like I was meant to be doing this. And a lot of times big, big challenges have come my way. And, you know, I'll, I'll be in a dark corner feeling, you know, sorry for myself. And then another, the brighter doors open, like just if I look to my right. And it's, it's kind of been that way since the beginning. Of course, there's been challenges, but there's been more amazing things happening through this restaurant than I could have ever, ever imagined, which is just incredible. And I really do feel like I'm on the right path. Yeah, you are. I know that at the restaurant, you also have like an all Indigenous team representing different nations. Can you tell us about that? Like, how did you do that? And how does that work in terms of the food that you showcase? Well, I mean, I try to keep labels out of the kitchen. Um, That's like a very colonized approach, having labels. So I like just building a team. And um, yeah, I mean, the way we build the menu, we talk to each other, we come up with ideas of inspirations, we talk about what's in in season and costs and, and inspirations and just try to do it. uh, Salmon and bannockize it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so you've turned that into a verb salmon and yes. manic, I, said. <laughs> I love that so what does that mean um like you'll see you'll see dishes that you see in other places but it'll be done with our our little uh viewpoint like we do um for example we do a, we call it a risotto but it's made with the anishinaabe wild rice and um often it'll have smoked mushrooms in it and you know, smoked cheese, different things like that. It's it, you see a risotto on a menu, you're used to it. It's often a vegetarian dish. Ours is vegetarian, and it's but it's made with the Anishinaabe wild rice, which is actually a grass. So that's something kind of cool. That's um, very cool. What would yeah. you like people to take away from this? And as when they come to Salmon and Bannock, what, what do you think they should take away from this? Um, I don't know. I mean, now like we do a land acknowledgement to all of our guests. Every time, every single table is seated. We're trying to lead by example. And um, I think just opening their minds and their hearts. And, you know, reconciliation is lovely. Truth is the most important. And I'm all about reconciliation. So even coming there and supporting um, Indigenous business is uh, economic reconciliation, which is great. And understanding that is really great. First of all, great word. Reconciliation. <laughs> love that. So do you see Thank more you. restaurants perhaps as part of that reconciliation? Yes. Yes. So maybe yes. a salmon and bannock coming to a neighborhood near anybody? <laughs> well, it just depends. It's a lot of I've had a lot of requests. <laughs> but um I'm I just want to get the airport going uh smoothly. It you know and uh then I'm looking at other possibilities, but the areas have to have good salmon. <laughs> we only served wild salmon, nothing farmed. We don't use the F word. <laughs> I like that. But you have, you have to have your standards, right? Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, Inez, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, that is Inez Cook, the co-owner of Salmon in Bannock, is one of our extraordinary British Columbians. Check out the restaurant. There's the restaurant. They're also now out at YVR. But really learning about different cultures and practices through food, to me, is the best way. And Inez has been a pioneer, not just for herself, but also in all the people who come to her restaurant. And of course, we featured her as part of our extraordinary British Columbians.